Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm one of the hosts of New Books in Folklore. And today, my guest is Jack Sipes. And very unusually, he's not going to be talking about any one book, but five books, four of which are published by the small publishing house he recently set up called Little Mole and Honey Bear. Jack Zipes, welcome to the New Books in Folklore podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Rachel. It's a pleasure. Before we get to the books and your publication house, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a folklorist? We like to start off the podcast with this tradition of asking people their folklorist origin story. Well, uh, I'm not really a folklorist. That is, I never studied folklore, but I uh, came to folklore without realizing that I had a, a great interest in it many years ago when I was writing my dissertation on uh, the uh, romantic hero in German and American literature. I was re- I read uh, The Grimm Brothers. I read Tieck, uh, E.T. Hoffmann. I had spent uh, three or four years in Germany. And so I had uh, was able to read all of these authors in the original and I fell in love with uh, the actually first the literary fairy tales by the Romantics, and then later on realized that if you're going to understand uh, literary fairy tales, you have to know something about the oral tradition. And that's when I began self-educating myself on uh, folklore. And so perhaps you might call me a folklorist, but I'm somewhat of an eccentric and dilettantish uh, folklorist. And over the years, I have translated, I've translated, I don't know, about 20 or 30 books uh, from different languages. I speak uh, Italian, French, German, and I can also read Spanish. So that I was able to really study most of the, I would say, European and American folklorists and folk tales for the past uh, 40 or 50 years. And due to the fact that I'm somewhat productive, that is too productive, I was not able to have all the books uh, that I wanted printed by mainline publishing houses and decided at one point that if I'm going to publish all the stories by unknown, neglected, wonderful fairy tale writers and folklorists, then I should start my own company so that I can work at the speed that I want to work. And and that's how uh, Little Mole and Honey Bear came into being about two and a half years ago. I found a wonderful group of editors who work with me. They're they're called uh, the wise editors. And this group with local printers here in Minneapolis enabled me to publish uh, thus far 
four different books that one could consider. Uh, uh, these are generally political or radical fairy tales of some kind and by um, neglected authors from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and also illustrators, amazing illustrators. And this is what I'm doing during my retirement with the motto uh, to unbury these talented, neglected authors before I myself am buried. So that's, <laughs> that is what I'm doing these days. And uh, the coronavirus actually enhances my production because I am not allowed out of the house. I'm more or less quarantined and have to accomplish everything I do here in the house and um, have amazing amount of time to do what I want to do. So we are going to take a whistle-stop tour of the four books that you've published so far with Little Mole and Honey Bear before moving on to one more. I want to start with The Giant Owl and Tiny Tim. Now, have I said that correctly? Yes, you have. And this is by Christian Behrman? Yes, that is correct. This was one of my favourites. I loved it so much. So I guess... Can you start by telling us a little bit about who this Christian Behrman was and then tell us the tale of The Giant Owl and Tiny Tim, which is a beautifully illustrated hardback book? Sure. I'd be glad to. Christian Behrman is a perfect example of the type of authors and illustrators that I have been publishing. He was born in 1881 and died in 1924, a young man. And he came from a poor baker's family, and his father died when he was a young boy, and his mother uh, more or less supported him. And he was supposed to become a tailor, but he was not really intended, uh, with given his talents as a painter, to become a tailor. His mother managed to save up enough money so that he studied art. In, uh, in Munich and uh, won a Munich prize that sent him to Italy. And during World War One, there was very little known about him because he, uh, he never married and uh, there were no relatives who saved his paintings. A lot of his paintings were destroyed during the bombings of, in uh, World War Two. But uh, he managed uh, to paint and also started illustrating children's books in the early 1920s. And one of the books, I have two or three of his books, actually, but one of the books that he published, he wrote the story. And he also, at the same time, drew all the illustrations, which are really brilliant illustrations. About There are about 40 illustrations in this book. And it's all about Actually, it's a very relevant book because it's all about this giant who saves a town, a small town, from an epidemic and from, and he battles death and convinces death that he uh, should not uh, destroy this town and destroy Tiny Tim, who is his best friend, a young boy who worked a farm and uh, a farm where uh, the giant old worked. And it's a hilarious tale at times because there are these demons that come from the underground and try to also play mischief in the town. And they are the craziest looking demons you've ever seen. 
and the giant uh, and the giant and tiny Tim worked together to save the town. So it's a it's an absolutely remarkable book that I stumbled upon while I was in Germany one time, and I translated it and found a printer, you know, to start. This is the initial book in my series uh, that I'm doing with uh, Little Mole and Honey Bear. It's not all played the same for this giant, is it? Because at the beginning, he wants to go to the town and become friends with the humans there, and they don't, they don't like him. That's right. There are many themes, actually, uh, that make this book so relevant because he is almost like an immigrant or, or you could say a refugee. He's very lonely on a mountain and he goes into the town and he's so huge that he frightens the town and the town think that he, uh, the people in the town think that he's going to destroy the town, but he really wants to work and help people. And uh, they chase him from the town. And that's how he meets Tiny Tim, whose parents have died, perhaps in World War I. And the, he's left with his younger brother and sister. And Tiny Tim falls asleep in a wheat field. Uh, I'm sorry, the giant oaf falls asleep in a wheat field. And in the morning, Tiny Tim is very angry with him and wants to chase him away. And But the giant says, look, you need some help on this farm. And that's how they formed this amazing friendship. It's really touching. And and all the kids in the neighborhood also love the giant owl who takes him swimming and things like that. There are some beautiful illustrations of this. Like they're all climbing up a ladder to get to his face. And I just adored this book. The illustrations are just gorgeous. Yes, they are. So that was the first book in my series. And then the next book that I did is called A Johnny Breadless. That's subtitled A Pacifist Fairy Tale, right? That is true. And in French, it's Jean Saint-Tain. And of course, Jean would not work all that well in English. And so I, I try to think about, you know, what is key in, in the particular tale. And, and he has no bread or, or the bread are crumbs. So this is a story about a young boy. He's about nine or 10. And his parents, his father dies in World War One, And it, it is, takes place during World War One. And the author, Paul Vaillant Couturier, was a bohemian poet and served in World War I valiantly, was wounded many, many different times. He went into the war as a poet and not with any type of political ideology. And he came out of the war very disappointed and was one of the original founders of the Communist Party in France. And he also was a poet, continued writing as, as a poet, and also was the editor of L'Humanité, which was the first communist paper, newspaper in France. And in 1921, he decided to warn children by writing this book, Jean Sampin, uh, Johnny Breadless. And it's all about when Johnny gets, uh, hears, comes home one day, he finds that his mother has died. So he is neither mother or father. And he leaves home and goes into the woods where he meets this magic rat, rabbit. And the rabbit is very fond of him because he has uh, chased away hunters 
from uh, all the animals. And he said, since you are have been such a friend to us animals in the woods, I'm going to show you what the world is like so that you can begin smiling because Johnny cannot smile at all. And so the rabbit takes off his ears and they form the propellers of a plane and then some pheasants join and they make this <laughs> plane uh, take Johnny first to a factory where he sees how his mother had worked herself to death in, in this particular factory. Then they, the rabbit takes him to see these decadent, rich people and politicians and generals and priests and so on to see how they just waste away their lives and don't care about anything. And then he goes to the uh, front, to the battlefront where the war is taking place. And there was, at the beginning of, uh, during World War One. There was a famous night, I believe in 1914, Christmas night, when the soldiers from all the fronts actually crossed the lines without killing each other and celebrated Christmas together. And then the next day went on killing themselves. And Johnny's exposed to all of this and realizes how decadent people, these elitists are controlling the world and controlling his fate, controlling, of course, the deaths of his mother and also father. And at the very end of the story, there's a sort of indication that uh, the revolution, 1917 revolution in Russia is going to bring about a great change for democracy. So to, again, it's illustrated. I, there are two in, in this particular book. I kept uh, there are two versions: uh, one version of 1921 and one version of 1934. I kept uh, in English uh, the 19. I worked from the 1934 translation uh, or, or edition, and then in the second part of the book. I published illustrations by another, by a separate, uh, distinct illustrator with, in French. So there's a French and English in this book, and it's a, a really tender, compassionate study that I find very compelling. Can you tell us a little bit about the two artists who did the respective illustrations? Well, the illustrations are, are very, very different. The original one of 1921 was done by a more traditional illustrator. His name was Ladour, but they're very compelling because you get you really get a sense of how the French dressed and what they looked like. And they're in watercolors that are also uh, rather amazing. And then the other illustrator for the 1934 book is Jean Lourcain, who was a very, became a very famous abstract painter and uh, he too, uh, all of them were very political, were on the left. So you have two really distinct versions, at least in, in the illustrations, which really bring out how you can approach uh, this whole topic of war and exploitation of people. The other two books also seem to be about war and exploiting people. Next, we come to Kedil the Great, which is subtitled And All You've Ever Wanted to Know About Fascism. And it has a rather... Hitler-esque caricature on the front cover. Yes. Yeah, this is a, a, a stunning book that, and in fact, I was in New York at, at uh, Strand's bookstore 
which is very famous uh, books uh, used bookstore also has new books as well uh, in Greenwich Village about uh, two years ago and I was just browsing and in the antiquarian session and it was this book the cover of the book has uh, it just says keto on it and then there is a small picture of a individual that looks like Hitler. And I said, oh, my God, what is this, a German Nazi book or something like that? And I picked it up and read it, and I was stunned because it's a, a, a wonderful uh, – the, the illustrations are by uh, Frederick Fox, who worked in the 1920s and 30s in California and did caricatures. And the authors are Deidre and William Councilman. They were the uh, son and daughter of a also a famous animator, famous for inventing a film based on Cinderella. And he was he was a, a good friend of Fox. And I think that the father who died in 1940, the year that this book came out, may have been the real author for this book, but I'm not too sure. I haven't been able to get the information. But the wonderful thing about this book is it's all about this sort of, on one page, you get these huge, wonderful, remarkable illustrations of how this skinny kid who hates insects and people and destroys anything in his way, he eventually becomes a fascist or becomes a more and more, he looks like Hitler, and he's destroying families uh, and hurting people and wants to take over the world because he forms an army. And eventually, the world, pictured as a sort of uh, human being, laughs at him and laughs, uh, laughs him to death. <laughs> so it's a really, a, I would say, an educational book because it basically shows how fascism or a fascist comes into being uh, because he's so mean and brutal. And then through various episodes in his life, we see him becoming nastier and nastier to the point that the world wants to do away with him. So I felt that, my God, I've got to include this book in the series and, uh, again, reprinted it just this past year. And the other book, that I found more or less at the same time, but this time I found it at a book fair in uh, Minneapolis, where I live. It's called Yusuf the Ostrich. And this too is a story about fascism, but totally different. It was written and illustrated by Emery Kellen. I had never heard of Emery Kellen before, and I picked up this book, and again, I was stunned by the beautiful watercolors and ironic humor. It's a, it, because the book deals with an ostrich who is born in a desert in uh, North Africa during World War II. Once he is born and grows up, he wants to uh, learn how to read and write. And he's sort of adopted by a young Arab boy who loves him. But at one point, uh, because he's a little bit too independent and doesn't listen to his mother. He is caught by the Nazis who are occupying Northern Africa at this time. It's, you know, early 1940s. And he is then, uh, he, he had worked for the American forces delivering messages 
and now he's captured by these Nazis, and they want to make him work for their cause, but he won't do it. And two little dachshunds <laughs> who are wearing sort of a, a, a swastika as, as coats, but actually hate the fascists, help him escape from the Nazis, and he comes back home, and then he has information that he's gathered about what the Germans are going to do in North Africa and becomes a hero among all the Arabs and Americans in North Africa. And all he wants at the very end of the book is to rejoin and love his mother. It's, a, again, a tender book. And in the course of finding out something about Emery Kellen, I stumbled on uh, on a amazing political caricaturist. He was a... Um, a Hungarian Jew who was famous with a good friend of his uh, during the 1920s and 30s uh, when he worked for the uh, League of Nations and used to draw political caricatures and uh, escaped the Nazis in 1938 and came to America. And during the 1940s, he began working for the United Nations as the uh, director of television and at the same time, he wrote and illustrated about three or four books for children, along with his wife, whom he met at that time. And they also did a version of Aesop's Fables, brilliantly illustrated by Kellett. And he also wrote books for the uh, United Nations that celebrated peace. And he is totally unknown, and all his holdings are at the... Princeton University Library, which I, I traveled to and did a lot of research on him. And I'm hoping to pu uh, publish some other books by Kellen because he is highly significant. He died sometime in the 1970s. This book, too, is beautifully illustrated, and it really has a message about fascism that all children and adults should learn and read. Yeah, this was another one of my favorites. And I think it's because of the illustrations. They're just so gorgeous. We've got a picture here of Yusuf the ostrich sitting with a book in his feathers as he studies with various other <laughs> children in the village where he, he lands up. Later on, we see him running away from the Nazis with a Nazi. I think he's got a Nazi helmet on his head because he's been kind of like co-opted by the Nazis, even though he's working undercover. We see a, a map with the Nazi generals looking at the route of Yusuf, who's now escaped. I mean, he's just, it's just gorgeous. And some of them are in color and some of them are in black and white, but they really are absolutely enchanting. So I really look forward to seeing more works by this wonderful artist and illustrator and, and writer. So those, that was a very quick tour of the four publications to date by the Little Mole and Honey Bear publishing house that you've set up. And then the fifth book that we're going to look at is published by Wayne State University Press, and it's called Charles Godfrey Leland and His Magical Tales. You're the editor of this, and you've written an introduction to it. So tell us, who is Charles Godfrey Leland, and why should we know about him? <laughs> He's a, he's a really remarkable in, individual. Uh, he was uh, born about 1820 and, uh, uh, and uh, he, uh, to a wealthy uh, Philadelphia family. And uh, he supposedly uh, was influenced by folklore by uh, 
some servants in, in, in the house who used to tell him stories. And uh, he then uh, became fascinated by uh, the occult, the uh, mysteries in, in the world. His uh, parents, uh, his father then, uh, uh, after he finished high school, sent him to Princeton, uh, which he hated, uh, but he, he managed to graduate last in his class in the early, uh, 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 I think in the early uh, 1940s, right about uh, 1840s, I'm sorry, 18, 1842. And uh, uh, from there, he, uh, uh, after, after he graduated, uh, Princeton, his father uh, sent him to Europe for two years and uh, he became involved in some of the 1848 uh, revolutions, which really changed his outlook on the world. Uh, he always felt that he wanted to become something other than he was. In other words, the, uh, the son of a, of a, a wealthy family that uh, were not uh, a family that was not giving much back to the world. Uh, and uh, he then uh, became a uh, a journalist for different uh, newspapers, and uh, and because he knew he was fluent in German, and uh, and he eventually became fluent in Italian and French as well. Uh, he began writing all types of very comical uh, uh, stories and essays, uh, very much uh, like Mark Twain. In fact. Uh, a lot of people considered him uh, the second Mark Twain in America uh, at the end of the 19th century. And then uh, at one point, uh, uh, he inherited, after his father died, he inherited a lot of money. I think that was in 1870. He and his wife went off to, uh, uh, to England. And in England, he encountered a lot of Romy, Roma, Romy gypsies, that is. And uh, he uh, wrote he wrote three or four different studies and collected tales by the Romi, and uh, uh, became uh, very interested in folklore of all kinds. And when he uh, when they decided to go back to America, about this was about seventeen eighty or so. I'm sorry, eighteen eighty. I'm getting my dates mixed up. And eight, uh, he went back and. Uh, 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 and uh, then developed uh, some schools for children who normally didn't go to college, but they had learned everything about technology and uh, work for working class kids in Philadelphia. And he also became friendly with uh, various uh, Native American tribes and wrote down their tales. Uh, they became very disenchanted with America, he and his wife, and only stayed four years in America and then decided to go back to Europe and um, and in and made Florence their home. And in Florence, he uh, he definitely he believed in magic and uh, uh, he believed in shamanism, he believed in witches, and there were many, many uh, witches, real witches in Florence, and he gathered tales from the witches and um, uh, also did a lot of research, traveled, and uh, published numerous 
collections uh, 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 taken uh, uh, taken from Italian folklore uh, and also again uh, from the gypsies and uh, also uh, he had the Native American tales and then invented one of the books uh, that he wrote that I love and I published I actually published this uh, as a uh, this is a actually a ancient uh, a, uh, 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 ancient uh, uh, book that I, I published uh, with the University of Minnesota Press, uh, and it was part of uh, already of Little Mole and Honey Bear. In, in other words, this was published in 2018, and it's called The Book of 100 Riddles of the Fairy Bellaria by Charles Leland. Uh, Charles Godfrey Leland, and it's an exquisite book. But uh, the book that I just published uh, with Wayne State University Press is a selection of uh, the uh, different uh, four different uh, types of tales that interested him. And uh, these are tales uh, about the legends of Florence, uh, legends uh of uh, different uh, communities in Italy, uh, and also uh, the the uh, they involve uh, tales from the Native Americans and from the Gypsies. So it's a, a really unusual collection, and I'm trying to sort of create interest, new interest in Leland because there are many other books uh, that he wrote that are worth uh, uh, publishing. Do you have a couple of favorite tales that he collected that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I, I, I do. Uh, and uh, uh, one of my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite tales is about uh, it sort of sums up Leland to a certain extent, and it's a sort of a legend uh, and it's about this man who does very wealthy, and uh, he has a fountain that is considered uh, a magical fountain, and that fairies live down there. And uh, one time, two very wealthy friends of his uh, decide to uh, come and visit him and are having drinks in a garden, and they start laughing at him and uh, about his uh, sort of dedication to magic and the occult. And uh, they said, do you really believe that there are these fairies rumbling down in this well? And, and he says, yes, of course I do. Uh, I, uh, and, and there are two beautiful uh, uh, fairies I see every now and then. And they start laughing and uh, making fun of him. And as they are talking, a one a servant comes and says, uh, "Sir, uh, there are two ladies out front who want to uh, talk to you. Uh, would you mind coming out front with me?" And uh, 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 and so he gets up and leaves and goes out front. And there are, and nobody's out there. In the meantime, uh, part of the uh, sort of. Uh, um, mansion or part of the uh, house in which she lives falls, uh, uh, breaks and falls on the two men who had made fun of him. And they're not killed, but they're heavily injured. And 
then the owner comes back and sees what's happened to them. Uh, and he knows that it's the fairies who are angry at these two men. And uh, that's the end of the story. Uh, and it, it, the particular title of the story is actually uh, based on that. Uh, a le- based on a legend that circulates uh, in Florence about this particular area. So that's, I think that's sort of my most favorite uh, story because it, to a certain extent, it represents Leland always felt that a lot of people mocked him or made fun of him because of his dedication uh, to the to magic and his strong belief in, in all types of of uh of sorcery and uh by the way uh he was one of the founders of the uh american folklore society and uh he also mixed with members of the uh uh british or english uh folklore society so he was uh to a great extent uh considered uh not a one of the greatest of all scholars, but uh, considered one of the uh, pioneers of folklore, both in the United States and also in England. And uh, as I said, I think that his works need to be rediscovered. You've written that one of the things that marks him out is, I'm going to quote you here, his tilt toward literary embellishment to represent his high regard for the craft and poetry of the various groups that he studied, essentially transforming the tales into translations of the original narratives. Yeah, no, he definitely was not. uh, I I mean, uh, folklorists today would not consider him a very good folklorist because uh, you know, he didn't have tape recorders, uh, and he wrote uh, in a uh, sort of high-level, high-level American English, uh, and, uh, uh, and so so that uh, his tales uh, are, are written in a an educated American English style. That of course the Native Americans, the gypsies, and the witches didn't speak, and 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 of course the Italian tales he had to translate all the Italian tales, and it was never with a flavor. You never really get a great flavor of Italian in his in his his translation. Uh, I tried in my I I did edit his tales because uh, he quite often used thou the. Uh, and so and so forth, uh, old-fashioned type of English at the end of the 19th century. So, uh, but I, I think I also try to respect his own personal style, which I thought think is is really uh, flows very very well, and he has a great sense of humor. And this collection that you've edited, it's just a small sample of his work. Is that right? From what I understood, he was very productive, as are you, and gathered lots of stories. Yes, no, he was extremely productive. He wrote a lot of poetry. He was, I, I think, uh, uh, I wouldn't call him a miserable poet, but he wasn't a great poet. Uh, uh, but he, they're about, he, I think he must have published uh, close to 20, 30, 30 books on, on many, many different topics. He, uh, for instance, uh, I told you, uh, uh, he published three or four books about drawing and sculpting and uh, uh, and 
um, for young young people. Uh, he he was a great designer. I mean, he was a multi talented individual uh, who uh, was very. Uh, I would say very eccentric, and uh, and I think uh, uh, that uh, he was never. He always wanted to be somebody else than he was supposed to be, and it comes out in almost all the works that he or that he wrote. And it's interesting. The illustration on the front of this book is by you, right? <laughs> yes, I, I do wood printing and uh, wood wood carving and. And so, yes, I did two illustrations for that book uh, uh, because I'm, I'm somewhat entranced by him and uh, wanted to learn more about him by trying to draw him. And so that's, uh, uh, yes, the cover is by me. <laughs> and so that woodcut cover is based on an actual photograph? Yes, it's based on an actual photograph. And then there's another uh, another illustration that I did inside the book. So I wanted to show both two sides of him. One was he, the, the on the cover, he's sort of an elegant uh, a man dressed in a black suit, and inside he's more and more or less like a rough and tumble uh, uh, folklorist. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're very two very different, but you can see that they're the same person, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> so do you identify with one aspect of him more than the other, or am I making a leap too far there? Oh, no, no, I love the rough and tumble one. <laughs> <laughs> so you said he published maybe 30, 20 or 30 books, and you've published four under the name of your publishing house, let alone all the other things you've published in your life so far. So what have you got next on your plate? Yes, uh, they're actually in production right now. I discovered, I'm, I'm discovering uh, in the interwar years from 1922, well, through the 1940s, um, uh, a lot of uh, writers who wrote for children and adults, and you can't separate uh, say these books are for children or adults, but uh, children would enjoy them. And there's a an amazing, really, really amazing um, painter and artist. Her name is Dorothy Burroughs, and nobody has ever written about her. She's uh, and she published about thirty books for children in the nineteen uh, and uh, wrote them and also illustrated them. Uh, much in the same manner that, uh, that uh, I would say Kellen and also uh, uh, the uh, uh, Christian Baumann. she was very experimental in her in her uh, in her painting of animals and in fact she loved animals she was a real animal rights person way before the animal rights movement so all her Books that she published, in, in particular in the 1930s and 1940s, um, were uh, in, uh, are missing because of the uh, bombing in England. And uh, but there's an, there are enough of her books around that I, I have about ten to fifteen of her books that I want to publish. They're so amazing stories that only have animals in them, and, and they're anthropomorphized and uh, uh, the animals are, are uh, one is about a refugee another is about about uh, 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 three brother badgers 
who go and rescue uh, uh, their brother uh, from uh, a uh, sickness, an, uh, again, an epidemic, uh, and uh, they have to go to an island where there is a monk who's living there with a unicorn. Uh, so a brilliant writer-illustrator. And so two of her books, uh, The Magic Herb, and uh, the other is called Teddy the Refugee. It's, it's all, all about this mouse who has to, during the, uh, the bombings in London, has to flee uh, the city and go into the country and there make a, uh, this entire new life. And, and it's, a, it's all about the refugee problem. Uh, again, morphological. Uh, 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 sort of a, uh, a metaphorically uh, really deals with the question of refugees, immigrants, and so on. And then the third book that I'm, I'm trying to get the rights for is a book that came out actually in the 1950s, but it's a book about a boy with green magic green thumbs who uh, uses his green thumbs to prevent his father, who's a uh, uh, who owns a factory where weapons are produced. And, uh, the, and the hero of this book is Tistu. And Tistu uh, uses his green fingers uh, to create flowers that prevent the guns from going off. And uh, he actually prevents a war. So it's a wonderful story. and should be reprinted. Uh, uh, and it speaks again directly to the... Uh, green movement to the environmental movement uh, that uh, is rather strong today. That all sounds wonderful. And I don't want to take up any more of your time since you obviously have many, many things to get on with. So listen, Jack Zipes, thank you so much for taking part in the new books in Folklore podcast. And our listeners can find out all about the books discussed in this podcast, as well as about your publishing house, Little Mole and Honey Bear, and the notes which accompany this podcast. Okay, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And again, I'm Rachel Hopkin, and the New Books in Folklore podcast is just one of the many channels you can find on the New Books Network. Have a lovely rest of day.